Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today is March 26, 2020, the second week of a full-scale work, travel, and school shutdown being imposed across our cities, provinces, and just about every nation around the world. As people and governments on every corner of the earth try to grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic that has swept across the planet. These are no doubt unprecedented times as everyone tries to cope with this new reality. Today's one-on-one interview was originally going to take place in person, but now that everyone is expected or required to practice social distancing, this interview is being recorded over the phone. The topic, which was chosen well before this pandemic hit, is about resilience and sustainable design, and perhaps, to some extent, has some relevance to the impacts of this global crisis. My guest today is Lisa Bate a global sustainability lead and principal with B plus H Architects, a highly diversified global architectural firm based right here in Toronto. Lisa has been with the firm since 2007, and her design and project management experience spans across Canada to China, the US, the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, and India. From 2012 to 2015, she was based in Shanghai as the company's managing principal for China, and Executive Vice President for Asia. And as a Global Ambassador for Sustainable Design, she is also the Chair of the World Green Building Council's Board of Directors. So Lisa, with that, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. No problem. Thanks. to I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and you know, these are really crazy times, I think, for everyone uh, in any walk of life. Um, the impacts of COVID-19 are so grand and so pervasive on so many levels, it's it's really quite difficult to absorb and, and make sense of it all. Um, one example, uh, just with the Urban Land Institute, is the ULI Spring Meeting that was scheduled to take place here in Toronto in May of this year. For the, It was going to be for the very first time in Toronto. It's been cancelled. I know everyone on the organizing committee is very disappointed, but it had to be done. I'm curious, just to start off, what, what's been the impact to your organization that you're experiencing so far? So obviously, Jeremy, this is affecting our global operations, but uh, what is interesting is right now the West is learning the lessons from the East, Eastern part of the globe. So having the start uh, in China and spread, and ironically, in late November to mid-December, I was in Uh, Southeast Asia, I was in Vietnam and in Hong Kong and Southern China, uh, where our North American operations and our MENA, our Middle East and North African operations, are learning from what we already have in place uh, in China. Uh, Interestingly enough, our Chinese operations, uh, you know, shut down a Chinese New Year uh, amid all of the government and health authority direction to do so. Mm. We could have reopened on February 10th, but we kept the offices closed till February 17th. Mm. All of our IT, our VPNs, our pre-prep, all of that that we had to do at the time, the, the strict social distancing, all of that, we now were quite easily able to, uh, to uh, implement in uh, North America 
and in the Middle East and North Asia, uh, North Africa because of what we learned in, in China. So obviously it hit Seattle first, where we have significant operations. So we were able to uh, go with lessons learned. And China now, our Shanghai office, is back up to full operations. Is that right? Uh, there's, oh. Yeah, so strict social distancing. Temperatures are taken at building entries. It's quite people are quite familiar when you go to uh, China and arrive at airports. You step over a pad that takes your temperature. Um, you know, there's green and yellow and red. Hmm. If you're green, you're allowed to go to work. If you're yellow, you must self-quarantine. If you're red, um, you know, you've got to then, it's it's strict, uh, not going outside, health and travel history. Um, and, and so basically we found in China, everybody was, was back up pretty quickly. And right now we just have a couple of expats uh, predominantly in our Chinese operations, one in Italy, one of our hmm. senior design talents is in Italy and still there when he went home for Chinese New Year. So I think we're doing remote working incredibly well. And I think, you know, the, the projects have continued, the projects that we're working on have continued in the apex of the crisis. So thank you, uh, all of the clients that are continuing to do the work. That's amazing. Um, but were there any impacts to the business early on, even in, in China, as uh, as you first experienced um, the pandemic? As I said, some projects, I mean, especially in Asia, they continued. Uh, we're starting to see things settled more so our, in, in uh, our Seattle office. We mostly work, work with the big tech companies. We work with Amazon. We work with Microsoft. We work with you know, so many of, of, of those uh, big tech companies, they're continuing business as usual. They're busy uh, because of all the, the online and home deliveries. Right. So that's continuing. In Toronto, we're waiting to see more of our commercial sector. Uh, institutional sector uh, is, is continuing to, to tag along as are our commercial projects. We've had a couple. Obviously, the, the hardest hit uh, are always going to start off with being retail, hospitality, and those, but we still have some of those projects continuing as well. So it's day by day. Hmm. Uh, it's not all doom and gloom. Hmm. And uh, we are saying we even won some significant new projects in Ho Chi Minh City, a full city block uh, mixed-use development with, with tall towers and in Shanghai. We're continuing to see new one work. So we're on a three months behind here in the West, uh, in, in the Americas anyway, than the East. So we have seen recovery, and, and we are seeing that our teams are busy and new projects are coming in. So do you think that the way that you have responded and the advent of technology and, and what you've gone through so far, is that going to have any impact of how you conduct your business going forward? Probably. Uh, I think we were already there. You know, my role uh, in a global role where I, I service all nine offices, uh, you know, some more than others, but... Uh, you know, the, the work day uh, has ebbs and flows based upon what the timing is and alignment with, with other offices when they're open and closed. And I think we've just always had our IT group is incredible. And they're the guys now that have kept us going. Huge shout out to them. Uh, and, and I would say our operational group with our COO leading it, just, you know, the VPNs uh, and a lot of what we've been able to have in place anyway to be able to work you know, for almost three decades in China. Mm. So I think that we were we were quite fluid proofed to be able to um, work well under this. The mm. connectivity is great. We've had some 
uh, town halls led by our CEO. Uh, we had two town halls on Monday and Tuesday to connect the whole global community to really give strong and very, very, very accurate information and to recognize that our people are our assets and that's the first priority for us. Yeah, I mean, we're we're experiencing that too uh, at Infrastructure Ontario, a, a company of 550 people. The first time all of us are um, having to work online and uh, listen also to a sort of a town hall uh, led by our CEO. Um, and uh, I think what is uh, a bit of a paradox is even though we are uh, forced into this social distancing and working from home, in a way it is kind of bringing us closer together. Uh, um, we have uh, numerous offices across the province. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how um, us as a company uh, um, conducts our business after this whole pandemic is, is hopefully resolved. I think that if there is a silver lining, maybe uh, if you want to call it that, a silver lining to this whole global crisis and pandemic, um, is that it's interesting, pollution levels around the globe have been considerably reduced, particularly um, air pollution. Car traffic around the world is at a bare minimum. Factories are closing down in, in some parts of the world. Air quality is much improved. And in fact, I just read that in, in Venice, dolphins and other marine life is starting to reappear. Um, so as we begin to take stock of this unprecedented event, is there anything that we can learn from this as it relates to thinking about building design and environmental sustainability? Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's interesting as you you raise around the dolphins and swans swimming in Italian waters. And it always worries me because people uh, who are uncomfortable with these conversations immediately leap to the fake news. So, so just to, I believe it was swans in the Venice canals and dolphins off the southern shores of Italy. Uh, uh, okay. What was seen, but they've been kind of lumped together. <laughs> okay. To naysayers My people. mistake. So, so no, it's not just, uh, so it, it is, um, you know, what, what I would say, if, if we were able to understand the climate crisis as a global health crisis, which is upon us now, and I go back to my, you know, core beliefs and, and uh, involvement with the World Green Building Council as Canada's rep, and look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals. So when at times like this, I immediately go back and go 17 goals. These are divided up into uh, a, a Comp a very simple format to basically deal with climate action, health and well-being, resources and circularity. Mm -hmm. Now, other people call this, you know, economy, society and biosphere. You know, there's there could be profit and people plus planet. Doesn't matter. It's a triage of of actions, of buckets of actions that we need to do. Uh, and to me, this very much ties into this current global health crisis. A week ago, I actually um, commented on a post because for uh, World Earth Day this year, which is on uh, April 22nd, mm -hmm. uh, there is a plant a sensor campaign that is being led by World Green Building Council, the Earth Day Network, and it's all around uh, air quality, um, interior air quality, and actually looking at the indicators upon human health and really tying it to the whole embodied carbon supply chain. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, when you look at VOCs, when you look at CO2, when you even look at HFCs and CFCs, uh, which we know are of course the chloro, uh, chlorofluoride carbons and the hydro uh, 
hydrofluorocarbons, mm -hmm. which are refrigerants and fluorides and freon, which we find, and obviously all the materials that make up the, the indoors that we live, work, and play in. We often see that, you know, over 90% of our time we spend indoors, and these all have effects on our health. So I think COVID-19, what I started to look at with this was, what if this great plant a sensor program where we're trying to get a million sensors worldwide could actually tie into airborne pathogens? Hmm. What happened if we could start to look at that? And, and I guess I, you know, I, I am um, anxious and I'm concerned uh, what we have seen, what has happened with the, the rampant transference of this. But I also then look and realize that, you know, China reported 3,277 deaths as of a couple of days ago from COVID-19. But if you look at research from Stanford that they estimate that improved air quality in China over the past two months has probably prevented 78,000 deaths. Right. So that was long to get back to your question, but it was with air, with pollution down in China, uh, that when you actually look at the numbers, this is a traumatic, horrible global crisis that we're under with, with health. But let's put it in the perspective of not only uh, pathogens that transfer, whether they're through uh, you know, water, whether they're through airborne or whatever it may be, but to me, they're all interconnected. So what happens next um, once all this is is uh, hopefully addressed? Hopefully, vaccines are are found and uh, uh, life can can resume uh, back to some sort of normalcy. Um, the questions about air pollution and other forms of pollution are: Do you think that um, governments and industries will take a little bit harder look at at addressing that? Well, it's always. The injury, when we look at governments and we look at policy and then we look at businesses and what we are able to do as human beings. And I think that is incumbent upon the corporate world and each of us personally and within our social context to realize that we all have the enablers to actually do this. We mm -hmm. have the tools, we have the technology, we have the pathways, we have the global connectivity to take on action to really deal with the two related concepts of human health and environmental health. So I think our current crisis has really accelerated uh, the adoption of this and imagine what can become possible if we leverage this platform for one common purpose, you know, that it is really a brighter, healthier future for all of us. And by all of us, uh, I mean in the ecosystem uh, that we exist in within the planet. So I, I do think we have had many organizations, everyone's improved in terms of their connectivity globally. Mm -hmm. Everybody is leveraging their networks. Everybody is focused on the uh, connections that they have. There's people meeting. You know, I've got a 515 uh, have a glass of wine uh, session, you hmm. know, over over Skype. Um, you know, you're seeing that a lot. A lot of our meetings yeah. have all gone to online. Is there inefficiencies? Yes. Are we figuring it out? We're adopting, we're figuring it out, we're, you know, we're, we're going as much as we can with business as usual, but there is going to be definitely a new normal that we have to take away from this. So I just want to make sure that we don't ever separate the health and well-being of people from climate action Very good. and resource and secularity and society, economy and biosphere, because to me, they're all interrelated. Hmm. 
Okay. Well, let's talk then about B plus H architects, um, getting back to where you work. Uh, and I, this was going to be one of my first questions uh, that I originally was thinking of before this whole pandemic hit. W- tell me a little bit more about B plus H architects when it was formed and how it's grown over the years and, and, so, and some of the areas of its specialization. Certainly. So, so the, the firm was uh, founded in 1957, so it's been around for quite a long period of time. Uh, and uh, the office in China started in 1992, so uh, in Shanghai. So we have been global for quite a period of time. So we're coming up to 30 years in China and we're over 65 years uh, coming up to our 70th anniversary with the firm. Hmm. Um, we have operations in the U.S., in Canada, uh, in the Middle East, uh, in Southeast Asia, in China, as I said. And uh, I, we've got a, quite a diversity of service offerings. And I think as we've, how we've grown is as we've, as we've gone to new places, we've set up routes. So we don't kind of land, fly in, do our work and move out. Um, and as we've, you know, we, we certainly are, are opportunistic. We've, we've grown and expanded where there were opportunities and where we're able to win opportunities. So I think we've really promoted international best practices. Uh, we have very local, um, we combine very much global best practices as well as, as local know-how. And I think we've also expanded our consulting practice you know, originally an architecture firm that then in the mid-80s added interior design that then uh, in around 2010 added landscape architecture and master planning uh, and then added our strategy practice, predominantly headquartered out of our uh, Seattle office and and our feasibility offering. So I think that, um, you know, that is really how we've we've expanded. Hmm. Uh, and, And I think that we we've really much aligned with this we've learned how to adapt we've learned how to collaborate across time zones and economies and and cultures and i think that we're i think most of us would be called lifelong learners and have highly intuitive adaptive skills so you you mentioned china 1992 was that the first country where you expanded abroad I believe earlier than that, that's before my time. I, I, I joined in 2007, but uh, I, I believe earlier than that, we did have an office in the U.S. and Texas. Um, but, you know, in terms of definitely leaping farther afield, was uh, that was the time, yes, for setting up operations. And what was that experience like? I mean, I guess maybe speaking with colleagues who have been there longer than you, um, to set up uh, shop, uh, so to speak, in China, where the ways of doing business, um, the cultural differences are, are, are so fundamentally different than what we're used to in North America. What was that like? Well, I can speak from my own personal side, by my own firm that was acquired by B plus H in 2007, but I started working in China in 2003, hmm. based in based in Toronto. So there was great alignment uh, with myself and, and, and joining and choosing to join B plus H. Uh, so what I would say is even though I always tend to look for similarities versus the differences. So it's still based on relationships. It's still based on people. It's still based on what is the problem and why is the solution the right solution? So the first project I ever was involved in at a significant scale was actually ecotourism uh, when China was expanding from 
the middle and and there was tourism uh, and travel was was starting to come about and it was ecotourism that they were looking at we've got this beautiful land how do we actually share it and who would come uh, from beyond Chinese nationals so that was the first one and then there was the Shanghai one city nine town Canada Fengjing Maple Town which I was fortunate to to win and then that the whole everything that that whole town was based upon German town was based on manufacturing ingenuity Italian town was based on cultural um, aspects of, of Italy and Canada town Canada mm. Fengjing Maple Town was based on sustainability and resiliency um, you know that that was what so I think China, uh, especially in in the early 2000s and the 90s, was very open to international um, best practices, international design, global economy, all of those things. And the first B plus H projects, the first three significant projects that were won were airports, and that those were built off of the experience with Terminal One and Terminal Three and the infield project, the big logistics center in the middle of Toronto Pearson. Hmm. So it was a leap from uh, uh, across a very large body of water uh, and a leap across cultures, but it was the same issue and problem of what do we do, do in a globally connected world and when people want to travel and how do we deal with this, this, this global aviation economy. Hmm. So what is it about being a Toronto-based firm, and I ask this question of of every of most of the guests I've I've interviewed for the season four. But what is it about being a Toronto-based firm that that you think gives um, you guys an edge over some of the local competitors uh, when you're working internationally, especially in places like China? Toronto is an incredibly diverse global city. We we all pretty much come from somewhere else. Uh, unfortunately, those who, who were here before us, we have not been great at taking care of. But I do think we have a very global economy. We have incredible diversity. Um, we have an embrace of population in terms of recognizing that we come from all over. So I think it makes us highly able to be able to operate in different markets and cultures and be respectful. I mean, I kind of come back to humble and kind. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that we tend to be that way. We don't kind of, you know, ride in on our, our, our you know, high of we know the best. Mm-hmm. I think we always look for some things. I think that we tend to design, and I think that we tend to think about place and placemaking from what it is that's unique about that place. Mm. And I think that just comes from us coming from different places and just the kind of social and geopolitical uh, situation that that we believe and and we hold dear. And is that what your clients tell you when you're working abroad that they um, they look to you because you have uh, you're you're based in a such a, a you know a city like Toronto that it has such an international flavor? Is that what they're telling you? I wish I could say yes, but mm. I can't say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's the way that we behave that they then see like-mindedness. They see understanding. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come down to you're from there, so it makes us more. We're having a conversation around a, a challenge or a problem or uh, an exciting uh, project that you want to do, and we immediately are focused on the, the like-mindedness, the problem, how we work together to deal with that issue, not here's my perspective. Right. It's more... That's the. I think it's a different methodology mm-hmm. of of thinking. So, what about 
um, skill sets or perspectives that that you may have gained or your colleagues abroad may have gained when you're bringing when you're looking at new work here at home? I think it's incredibly invaluable. I mean, living abroad for four years, uh, you know, you, you you realize that you know, even language. You know, I've been in rooms before where there could be, you know, people's first language could be six different languages, if not more, and you're trying to find a way to understand each other. So, mm-hmm. uh, choice of words, translation, all of these things. So, I think. Um, it's it's all you know the the cultural backgrounds that we have that actually then help us resolve these issues. So if you're if you're globally minded, and once again, I mean, I think one of the reasons I've always been interested in sustainability and resiliency is because it's for most people, whatever way they look at it, uh, it's a core value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a a a love of of people. Uh, you know, and and the planet and, you know, wanting to be successful in what we do. So if you go back to core principles and, and kind of what's in your DNA, um, then then I think you have conversations that help advance things. It's, it, it's, it's I think it's just, a, once again, it's a methodology. Well, I'm curious, your your background is in architecture. That That's what you studied. Is that, that's right? Correct. So how yes. did you wind up specializing in sustainability? I think a couple of things. I, ironically, before I went to university, I did an environmental design summer program at what was then OCA, now known as OCAD. Mm-hmm. And then I actually started in interior design at the University of Manitoba. Hmm. And it was because I had this idea that I would go on and do a degree in architecture afterwards. And it was the professors at University of Manitoba that said to me, Lisa, if you ask us one more time, if you could reshape the building, move the doors or windows, <laughs> so maybe you belong in architecture. So I ended up, Toronto was home, so I ended up coming back to Toronto and going to University of Toronto um, for architecture. So, and to me, it was just always good design. Why would you not immediately look at the aspects of the site of the climate, of the microclimate, of the geography, of the anthropology of that site, and take those advantages for anything that you designed? Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just always part of good design. I see. So let's talk about sustainable design. What? Give me maybe a pro, an example of a project or two that... Um, that your firm is is working on, or is currently or has worked on, or is currently working on that um, that speaks very strongly to sustainable design. I am really excited about the net zero carbon with the new um, second phase of the net zero carbon standard coming out in Canada, and have been fortunate. B plus H has three buildings right now with Mohawk College, Joy Center for Partnerships and Innovation, the first. Uh, net zero carbon operational building in Canada. It so was the first. Why don't you just explain for those listeners who may not have heard what net zero carbon standard is? What is that just exactly what that is, or is there more to Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so CAGBC Canada Green Building Council, that is the body that uh, hi- that um, put me forward to World Green Building Council. So I'm Canada's rep on World Green Building Council through the Canada Green Building Council. Uh, uses the lead for Canada standard, but also has a number of other standards that it supports and promotes and came out with the net zero carbon pilot project. And there were 10 projects when it first launched a couple of years ago. Now it is turning into a full blown 
um, rating system and tool. And by net zero carbon, carbon is energy, waste, and water. And under under the first standard, it was very much operationally focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a bunch of, of um, SIF funding, the Strategic Investment Fund, that was put into a lot of post-secondary education and, and a number of institutional buildings, but also there were private developers that sort of said, I see this is a competitive advantage. I'm going to have a net zero carbon facility where people can rent space and I probably can get higher rents and have with renewables, they'll have incredibly lower operational costs. Mm. So um, it was all happening at the same time. So um, with that, Mohawk, uh, the Joy Center for Partnerships and Innovation was one of those uh, early pilot projects. Another number, sorry, another was Humber College Building NX, which is a retrofit, which has just recently been certified net zero design carbon uh, and is in its first year. You can't be operational until you've had a year showing that you are operating at zero or that you're actually feeding back to the grid. And Mohawk College, Troy Center, is actually feeding back to the campus. So give exactly me some operating. examples of how how these buildings can achieve um, net zero. Uh, renewable resources predominantly, obviously uh, solar, mm-hmm. uh, wind, um, you know, depending on the siting, it can be tidal, uh, it can be wave, uh, tidal action, it can be wave, it can be uh, lots of, of different things with Mohawk, uh, very, very uh, relevant, extensive photovoltaic cells on the roof, which are quite pronounced. And then there's 5.3 kilometers of geothermal wells underground. So it stores the energy. It also borrows roofs from uh, other campus buildings alongside for for, uh, solar photovoltaics as well. Hmm. So that's that one. With Humber, which was a retrofit of a 1980s kind of postmodern glass block building, very complicated. Um, it actually, uh, by building, uh, by replacing the building envelope and super high energy efficiency glazing, and also actually through the envelope, uh, taking solar gain and using it as energy as well. Um, so, and with that, obviously the carbon footprint from an embodied piece, which is the whole supply chain of material, if you're retrofitting buildings, you're not throwing away uh, and what goes, you know, to to waste. Right. So um, we know with the embodied carbon equation that we're better to retrofit than build new in in locations where you can retrofit. Hmm. That that whole supply chain piece from extraction through transport, manufacturing, packaging, transport again, in uh, construction, construction waste into the building. That's a then end of life. That whole cycle that whole embodied carbon cycle, and then there's the operational piece, and that's what makes up total carbon. So how has um, industry, or your clients, I suppose, how have they um, responded to these kind of measures? Um, has it been sort of a, an evolving process to try to get to where you are now, or is it because um, uh, lowering costs and in, in the kind of technologies that you talked about, because it just it does seem like there's more and more of an embrace around the movement to uh, to strive for those sort of standards. I think it's market. I mean, you always have early adopters and you always have laggards, and I think that uh, the early adopters you often find are institutions or 
Um, this is core to their value uh, proposition as a, a company. Uh, the pension plans in Canada, the development arms of the pension plans in Canada have been very early on on a lot of these, which has to do with you know what their pension holders uh, believe in, but also it's about future-proofing with the, the longevity of, that those organizations have to future-proof uh, their investments for their pensions. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one. And then I think you often find educational institutions um, are, are often also very much at the forefront because they're centers of education and what's next. And so I think you see that. But um, and, and on the other spectrum of the net zero carbon, there's a net zero carbon. I like to keep things in buckets and so they simply can uh, understand them and they make sense to me. So there's that whole net zero carbon piece, but then there's a the whole better places for people piece. And we're seeing a lot of our big tech as well as our big financial institutions, as well as our big uh, professional service organizations and firms then really focusing on user experience, but also health and well-being of users within office space, mm, um, workplace, you know, all of those things as well. And then then you see community centers uh, in Toronto, the Pan Am Games, the 2015 Pan Am Games was a huge impetus, which we were fortunate as B plus H to lead the planning, design and compliance for all of the 18 new venues. Um, that then some of them became different bundles and were fortunate to actually design and, and author uh, a number of them. They all had a lead silver sustainability mandate and a number of them hit lead gold. Uh, and then the Markham Aquatic Center actually hit lead platinum existing buildings, operations and maintenance for a massive Olympic sized pool operating at incredibly low energy. So, you know, you, you find often there are some of these grand global uh, uh, events that happen help jumpstart mm. Vancouver Olympics greenest games ever mm. I mean that was another one so we often Expo 67 if we go back <laughs> that far we often see these you know world or national or otherwise events that happen that uh, definitely jumpstart things but I think there's a real focus on people and there's a real focus on carbon mm. Well, I mentioned in my intro the term resilience, um, and it is a term that has become more widely used in recent years, particularly as it relates to better preparing our cities to environmental threats, particularly flooding. Uh, that one, that's certainly something we've experienced in Toronto a number of times, um, as well as growing inequalities in our local communities. Um, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the, this terminology resilience uh, as it relates to the work you do and maybe in, to a broader degree what what we're seeing right now that we're experiencing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic and and how um, societies are responding. I always see resilience as what what do we do after whatever has happened. So ironically you bring this up because I had moved back from from China, where I was on Shanghai Management Committee of the ULI Mainland China uh, group, and and came back to Toronto and was asked to uh, take part and run a session on water, on resiliency, what was happening in Toronto in the spring of, of 20, at that point, 2018. Mm. And I was a little bit on my soapbox because we were having, I was living in the beaches, hmm. uh, where was which was where we raised our kids when we, and when we first came back, we moved back to the beaches. And, you know, watching 
the water the rise uh, along the lakeshore and hearing about you know contamination uh, in in the downtown harbor and everything else. So it's it's interesting to go back to that. The uh, but I think the resiliency piece is so critical because we are seeing you know whether people say well there's always been extreme storms. Look back to whatever doesn't matter they're happening now yeah. so let's just like get past that naysaying piece and say this is happening now so what do we do and we do know with future proofing and fluid proofing bad pun mm. cities you know there's some pretty minor adjustments we can make we often now have all of our our plants in high rises um in the base of buildings mm. below grade we park cars underneath which you know if you think about hurricane sandy yeah how the devastation in New York was minimized was because the subway system became the bathtub. Hmm. So, you know, when you think about Toronto, so there's that, but what do you do? So there's, you know, there's lots of things that we look at from a resiliency piece and, you know, Toronto resiliency standard, which I am not as, as familiar as probably many people who will listen to this and please send, send uh, <laughs> your best information about it. But I do think, you know, I've heard just even simple things like uh, curbs, um, you know, just curbs before you go down, moving plants so that uh, when I'm saying plants, I'm meaning obviously in, in terms of, of building uh, plant equipment, um, uh, you know, from basements, raising them up. So I think we're learning new ways to actually design buildings to make sure that uh, we, the effects of water and flooding um, become less so. Mm. But we've tended to build cities. If you look at where all the global cities are, it was always meeting places. It's where people gathered water. It was where animals and, and vegetation uh, grew congregated so that those are the best places to live uh, because that was the, the, the travel routes, uh, sorry, the um, uh, trade routes, mm -hmm. but also they were the most habitable places to live because you had access to fresh water. Uh, so I do think this is something that we've got to get better at, better at this whole resiliency piece. What happens after? What happens when this happens? How do we, how do we stay in situ, or and how do we recover? Yeah, and and it, it seems that you know um, these kind of. Uh, 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 epic flooding events that we've experienced in the last uh, short while in, in Toronto has really amplified that that need for this kind of strategy. Um, uh, I, I do have uh, one or two more questions, and it, it really has to do with leadership and, and women in, in a leadership role. Um, you know, not only have a, a very senior role in the firm, but you serve I got to think you serve as an inspiration to other women seeking a leadership role in, in the profession. Um, could you talk a little bit about women in the architectural profession and, and how it has evolved over the years and where you see it going in the future? Yeah, it was funny. Uh, a colleague and I did a webinar for the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada just before uh, the offices, uh, you know, started to shut down, and it was exactly on this topic. And when you look at, you know, presidents of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, when you look globally, when I think about who, you know, my mentors were, and there weren't many women at all, mm. um, you know, you look at that whole trajectory. So I think it, it is critically important. Um, Huffington Post had asked me a few years ago to write a continued piece on women in leadership, and I said I can do. I can do three, but you know, I, I do I have this day job and I do have this World Green Building Council and Canada Green uh, Building Council and family piece I have to take care of. But I think for me personally, 
you know, I've made a real personal pledge to mentor others. Hmm. Um, and, and I do think uh, when I look at the organizations that I support, ironically, in the World Green Building Council, 70-ish Green Building Council country members, the predominance of CEOs are women. Oh, okay. Which is, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, at B plus H, we actually globally are 56% female. Mm. And in architects, we're 50-50 split. So, you know, I think I tend to gravitate um, towards organizations that see diversity and uh, equality and um, people from diversity uh, as is predominant in, in the way uh, that they uh, are instituted and how they operate. Mm. Um, and, and I do think also that, um, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly complicated for women. And what we do see is where we, we tend to lose folks is obviously during the childbearing years. Right. So bringing this back to today, bringing this back to COVID ID 19 and being on numerous project calls where someone will say, I'm going to be on mute because my daughter's on my lap, <laughs> because daycares are shut down. You know, people are now working from home. Um, if they have help that comes to them, they've asked them, you know, to please stay home and take care of their families. So I think that there's just a new normal uh, that we've got to get used to. And, and I do think that there's all kinds of remote working. I know with me, I was in my own firm when I had young children and I worked Monday to Thursday um, in the office from nine to sorry, nine thirty to three. And it was, I was like, it was like that, you know, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner. Right. When you see the Tasmanian double right. world, what I got done when I had strict bookends and also what I was able to accomplish when I was working remotely uh, with a baby on a hip and a toddler in tow, um, you know, I do think that we have to recognize that um, having families or choosing not to have families is a way of life uh, and that everybody uh, deserves a seat at the table and maybe your seat kind of comes with a, a couple of interesting quirks and some family dynamic, but I just think that makes the design world so much better. Are there any female architects out there that inspire you? I mean, one name that uh, I'm thinking of is um, Zaha Hadid, the um, Iraqi British uh, architect who died a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that she she seemed to have a lot of inspirational quotes. Are there any any um, female architects out there that that you look to for inspiration? Well, it, it's it's interesting because I think we originally go to um, globally known. And I mean, Zaha had an amazing, uh, you know, life and business partnership with a dear colleague, um, you know, that helped her do uh, everything that, that she did. So I think it's about circles and I think it's about people. So, so often, I mean, Blanche Van Ginkel, who is a former dean at the University of Toronto School of Architecture, uh, who worked for Le Corbusier, um, you know, she she was an inspiration to me at the time because I didn't even think about it. I mean, she was a dean, but it's sort of, for me, it's always sort of after the fact. But if I think about who inspires me now, it is these young mothers that I am working with. Hmm. We have somebody now embedded within a client organization who is their sustainability and resiliency advisor for the next three to five 
years and how she can text me, get on a call with me, <laughs> manage a, you know, uh, can't have, can't have grandparents help because they're elderly. So she is balancing work life all within the contacts, nap time, everything else. So I am inspired Amazing. by the women that I work with in engineering firms, client groups, at B plus H every day with how they are just navigating all of that. That's amazing. So that's that's why I tend I tend to look at you know who who's directly immediately in front of me and how they're managing stuff. That that actually to me is where I get inspiration more than you know world awards for you know female architects kind of thing. Yeah, that's and great I, too. Yeah, but. Uh, well, there's certainly a lot of inspirational stories uh, going around right now, certainly in the medical and healthcare professions. Um, this has been really interesting, Lisa. I, I, thanks so much. And it's, it's really too bad we could not have met in person um, or at the upcoming, now canceled ULI spring meeting. But hopefully, we'll get a chance to meet again sometime in the near future once this pandemic is wiped out and everything can return back to normal. But um, anyway, I really appreciate your time. I appreciated your time as well. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to do this and uh, look forward to meeting you somewhere sometime. <laughs> and until then, keep well and uh, keep healthy and hold those you love tight and close. That's a good, those are good thoughts to think of. Thanks again, Lisa. Okay, take care. Okay. 